out there. Welcome to Theme is a Four-Letter Word. I'm Lindsay. And I'm LP. And today we're talking about queens. I'm raising my glass of Boschka to Queen Boudica, uh, who actually has her own beer from England, but I couldn't get it. Who are you raising your glass to? I'm raising my glass of uh, vodka spiked hot chocolate to Catherine the Great. Nice. <laughs> I'm excited for that one. Um, okay, so Queen Boudica uh, was for most of history, known as actually Queen Bodicea because of a spelling error, actually. Um, but it is now, we know, Boudicca. Um, she was queen of the Iceni people of the ancient original Britons, um, which I guess is kind of the equivalent to the Native Americans. She's best known as the queen who led one of the largest revolts against occupying Roman rule ever uh, in history. Uh, in the years 60 to 61 AD, while Nero was on the throne back in Rome. Her story is one and the same as the story of the people who made her their leader, the ancient Iceni and the trio Montes of Iron Age Britain, and it's an epic story. Um, it wasn't just the Iceni that she led into battle. It was a number of other tribes who also hated the fucking Romans. But in fact, we know very little about Boudicca as a person, aside from her leading role in this revolt. She's described as having had bright red long hair, and she was average height. Uh, she was an extremely respected member of the Iceni aristocracy since the time she was born. She was born into it, and she had a husband and two daughters, and also prior to her revolt, she had been cooperating with the occupying Romans. Um, and we also definitely know that one of the primary reasons for her and the Iceni people's huge military successes against the Roman legions in the revolt was due to their military's chariots, which the Romans didn't have for battles. So the Romans didn't have battle chariots, and the Iceni and Boudicca did. The Romans only had sporting chariots for in the Colosseum and whatnot. And Boudicca has had these sharpened skis posted to the wheels, and this is how Boudicca is presented famously in her chariot, or standing on her chariot, riding into battle, often with like her two little daughters behind her. Um, but her two, her two daughters didn't usually come with her, but Boudicca did definitely do battle. Um, she didn't sit on the sidelines. She definitely fought. She was by all definitions a warrior queen. And the legend of Boudicca, or at least how it's been told throughout Britain's history has varied a lot as different people have used her legend to serve their own political and ideological agendas throughout history. But the basic story is common knowledge to everyone in the UK. And it goes like this. Okay. So, like I mentioned, the Romans had been occupying Britain for about 20 years when Boudicca's husband, the king of the Iceni, died and had left his wife, Boudicca, and their two daughters, who at this time were aged 10 and 12 years old. So he left them the estate and, of course, the throne, and it was typical um, in, for ancient British tribes to have female leaders. Mm -hmm. um, so having women as, women as rulers was not out of the ordinary, but since Boudicca and her husband were living under Roman rule now, and since her and her husband had both thought that it was prudent for them to cooperate with the Romans, when her husband died, he did leave Nero and the Romans a small portion of property and whatnot, kind of, you know, just to show their allegiance with the Romans. Um, and honestly, I'm not sure exactly how much this was and what exactly was outlined in this. Uh, the book I read really didn't go into it. But of course, right, this was... Nero, and these were the Romans. So the concept of a female leader was, however, not a real possibility for them. They considered it an outright joke, and they kind of just laughed it off. And when they received word that they had been left a small portion, but that the kingdom had been left to Boudicca and her daughters, you know, in conjunction with Iceni tradition, they were like, yeah, right. So everything is ours, and we rule the Iceni now. And when Boudicca failed to relinquish her rightful throne and property, the, the Romans, of course, paid her tribal little visit. So as the Romans entered Boudicca's village, they began doing what they do best, or they did best, kick the shit out of the village people, start, begin sacking the village. So, so while some were kicking the shit out of the peasant, I seen I others went and dragged Boudicca and her two daughters from their, I guess, what must have been like a royal tent. Uh, and remember that Boudicca was a hugely respected queen and lifetime member of the Iceni aristocracy. And the Iceni were a very sophisticated people. 
we mm-hmm. found now um, they did have an aristocracy and these different hierarchical things. And so the Romans knew all this and they had gone there with a plan to humiliate her and they drug her and her daughters to the center of the city or the town when they tied Boudicca to a post, whipped her, and then they made her and the whole town watch while they raped her two little daughters oh to prove God. their might over hers. Turned out to be a huge fucking mistake for the Romans because it nearly cost them their whole uh, empire in Great Britain. And if that had happened, actually, um, who knows what modern Britain would be. Uh, mm-hmm. A lot of British people attribute their entire civilization with their Roman roots, and they credit the Romans with having given them architecture and culture. Um, uh, So interesting to uh, contemplate what might have been. There's been a lot of research done about ancient Britons um, because of this argument and this debate over where Great Britain would be and what Great Britain would be without the influence of the Romans. And Mm -hmm. a lot of archaeological evidence has been done on Boudicca, and it's actually led a lot of researchers and scholars to find a lot of archaeological and coinage evidence that suggests that the Britons were actually way more sophisticated than a lot of modern Britons have been have been giving all of these ancient British tribes credit for. There are also the Druids, who the Roman historians made out to be nutties, and so we've kind of thought as the, of the Druids as these typically nutty people who um, performed cannibalism. But scholars now say they were, I mean, they were completely sophisticated and wise, and they must have been so because they were so threatening to the Roman supremacy over the world that the Romans did, in Britain, under Nero, um, feel like they needed to be completely exterminated, um, which the Romans did succeed in doing. And actually, the extermination of the Druids on the island of Anglesey by Paulinus, the Roman general, and his Roman legions, actually coincided exactly with Boudicca's and the Iceni's revolt in 661 AD. A lot of people are now doing research about, and there's been a lot of stories that have said that Boudicca, I was actually working with the Druids, but uh, not a lot of evidence for that. Um, mm-hmm. So after Boudicca and her daughter's humiliation by the Roman soldiers, Boudicca rallied an army of more than 100,000 people, consisting of Iceni, as like I said before, other tribes like the Triowantes, who'd all been getting fed the fuck up with the Romans, um, mm-hmm. who'd been there 20 years now. Um, so besides Boudicca's chariots, her crew was kind of, they were a pretty ragtag crew uh, because the ancient Britons fought naked. Wait, um, <laughs> what? what? Yeah. Like literally usually, naked? Yeah, because they were, what? you know, they had, yeah. most. They usually just had a little piece of cloth maybe around their privates, um, but they didn't have, like, the armor. They didn't have sophisticated armor or shields. But it's still a pretty se- step from I don't have chainmail to might as well be flapping in the breeze. <laughs> what? Um, yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Way to party, Asian Britain. <laughs> and so, I mean, it actually is kind of important to keep that in mind when you consider how much success they did end up having against the Romans, uh-huh. who were fucking armed to the teeth and mm-hmm. protected in complete chainmail. So, mm-hmm. but th- besides the nakedness, they did have some things going for them that happened to do well in this revolt. Mm-hmm. Um, first, they were pissed as hell. So, uh, they were completely bloodthirsty, and that does show in a lot of the accounts and the, the violence that was unleashed on the Roman settlements. Second, they had way more people, because Paulinus, remember, had left the two main Roman cities, which were then called Camulodunum and Lindinium. Camulodunum is modern-day Colchester, and Londinium, of course, is modern-day London. So he had left these with most of the troops, and he left these cities practically defenseless. So you could say that, you know, the sheer hubris of the Romans was one of the things that also contributed to them mm. um, losing these two cities, because they do lose them. <laughs> and in the case of Lentinium, they had built zero fucking defenses for the city. It was a merchant city when it was first begun by the Romans, and they didn't mm-hmm. build any defenses, because they did. They had. They were like, no one's going to fucking attack us. We're Romans. And they thought of the ancient Britons as retarded barbarians. Uh, so there was also a third city that Boudicca and her forces completely raised to the ground, which is Verlanium, smaller city, and it's present-day St. Albans. Um, mm-hmm. So three total cities that Boudicca and her ragtag forces raised to the ground. Pretty impressive. First, Boudicca and her crew uh, marched on Camaldonum. 
Colchester, right? At the time, Rome's biggest and best city. And uh, Boudicca and the army raised the city to the ground after they had gone in there with that complete intention, right? We think mm-hmm. that they had no other intention but revenge. They were out to destroy everything. They <laughs> weren't going to take any hostages. Everyone was to die. And wow. they and this was the city that they kind of really had in their sights, we think, because this was the city where Rome had built, it was the center of the Roman Empire in Britain. And they built a tribute temple there to the ex-Roman Emperor Claudius, and we're basically in the process of raping the area of everything British and replacing it with everything Roman, including mm-hmm. architecture and government. So anyways, Boudicca army went through the city and killed everyone in sight. Uh, they went straight to the center where this temple was, uh, where a handful of Roman aristocracy had made it to. So they made it, these handful of Roman aristocracy had made it to Claudius's temple mm-hmm. in the city center and had locked themselves in there in the hope that they could wait there, wait it out for some Roman soldiers to be sent to save them. Instead, mm-hmm. Boudicca just ordered they all be burned alive inside. Wow. And that's what happened. Uh, <laughs> after that, maybe like two days rest, the rest, of the, the rest of, after the city was completely burned down, and there is archaeological evidence of this entire episode. It's clear I'm like there's sooty deposits that appear in a perfect layer that date back to this time, which is again 60, 61 AD, mm-hmm. um, if you go to modern day Colchester. So word had reached the Roman general Pilinus, who remember was still on the island of Anglesey. This was the first time he heard about it. He was like, oh fuck. <clears throat> they were finished exterminating the Druids. So Paulinus trucked himself and his troops back from Anglesey mm-hmm. uh, to try and get back and intercept Boudicca and her forces. But Boudicca and her forces were well on their way to Londinium and they were already closing in on the, remember, the totally unprotected Londinium. And Paulinus <laughs> knew he wouldn't make it back in time to help the city. So instead, a number of the Roman aristocracy were evacuated from Londinium. As many people as possible were evacuated just before Boudicca came tearing into the town. And here, like, the most disturbing accounts of Boudicca's rebellion come from her sacking of London. They mainly come from Dio and Tacitus, who were both Roman historians. Dio's account is probably the most graphic. So Mm. just as with Colchester, Boudicca ordered everyone in the town to be exterminated. But also in London, with the women, uh, the story we get from Dio is that the women's breasts were cut off sewn onto their mouths. I mean, we are told in the sources that it's to make them look as though they were eating their own breasts, and then they were impaled on a large, sharp stake. Mm. So whether these stories are true has been a matter of heated scholarly debate, though. Um, Remember, our knowledge of Boudicca's rebellion comes entirely from Roman sources, Roman historians Mm -hmm. who were writing for the Roman aristocracy and who were also often less concerned with historical fact than they were with writing titillating stories. (laughs) And um, the ruthlessness of Boudicca at Londinium was used by Tacitus and especially Dio to emphasize what a terrible idea it is to have women in positions of leadership because of women's exceptional capacity for this type of cruelty. Well, it's also interesting because, you know, at this very same time, Paulinus was exterminating an entire race of people. Oh, yeah, so, good point. Okay. Yeah. Hmm. Okay. Boudicca was killing rich people, Lindsay. That's always way worse. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I'm like, because, you know, the Roman tactic of crucifixion wasn't cruel at all. Oh, no. So in the 15th and 16th centuries... And especially throughout the reign of Elizabeth I, there were a lot more positive accounts of Boudicca that really tried to pull her out of this light. And more writers from the Elizabethan period give us historical accounts that, you know, weren't so much based directly on the classical accounts of Tacitus and Dio. So two of these authors, I'll just throw them out there for you, were called Camden and Speed. And these two dudes especially seem to have tried to draw from many sources in an effort to put forth a broader historical picture of Boudicca's life from the battles of 60-61 AD. Mm-hmm. The accounts of Boudicca became more and more critical of her role as a woman meddling in man's affairs and less concerned with giving historically accurate accounts after Queen Elizabeth died in 1603 and King James I took over the English throne. <laughs> King James notoriously was not a fan of female leadership. Plays were written about her, and one especially that was written by this guy called John Fletcher, totally threw history aside to create better drama, and also this was the play that really set the stage for later plays to perpetuate the viewpoint of King James, that Boudicca was a foolish woman, and that women ultimately needed to be restricted and carefully watched so that their baser sexual nature and incompetence don't wreak havoc in society. 
So also these were the plays that had a stronger pro-Roman viewpoint, right? That put forth this idea that Great Britain owed everything that they were to the fact that Rome had come and given them culture and civilization. And Boudicca had tried to screw that up. Therefore, um, she can't be trusted. Exactly. Um, <laughs> and she was just a barbarian. Anyway. But back to the story. Okay. After burning Lindanium down, her and her army, who by this time had grown to 230,000 strong, right? Mm-hmm. They really had, they weren't really losing people. Um, <laughs> they were gaining people um, from all over Great Britain, um, from all the different tribes, were hearing about what was happening. They're like, let's go. <laughs> so they, you know, grabbed their piece of cloth, put it over <laughs> the nest's appropriate part, <laughs> started running. Um, they left Lindinium. This is when it said that they destroyed St. Albans, raised St. Albans to the ground. And they were, after that, on their way to meet Paulinus and his army to do battle. Mm-hmm. So there are many different theories as to where exactly this final battle took place. Uh, but many scholars agree that Boudicca's army headed down what is now Watling Street that runs right out of London. You can go to mm. the street. I really? It's so, so funny and cute that it's it's so British. It's Watling Street. And... <laughs> Take a tour down Watling Street. We'll have a nice battle. <laughs> um, they headed down Watling Street to get to the battle site. This is what a lot of people agree on. But it's really difficult to know. But a lot of scholars do agree that Boudicca fucked up at this point because she consented to having the battle at a site that was chosen by Paulinus uh, um, in general. Don't mm-hmm. let the enemy Basically, the yeah. By this time, Boudicca was the one suffering from hubris Mm -hmm. and was maybe a little too confident that she'd win. She did have way more troops than Paulinus, um, and so she'd have some reason to be confident. I mean, she'd already raised three Roman cities to the ground. A few few barbarians or barbarian tribes could claim in all of history. Mm -hmm. But these were Romans. They weren't naked, and they were world-renowned for their innovative and devastatingly effective fighting strategies. Fighting the strategies we'll talk about a little later. First of all, they think that the site, the Romans did choose a site where it was kind of, it was like a little valley and the Romans could sit and they would be open and then the Romans planned to basically drive. The thing was, they think that the the battlefield, how it was described, it was surrounded by trees so they would be able to push Boudicca's forces into the trees and the Boudicca's forces would really have nowhere to run, like a trap, kind of like a little funnel, like they would funnel Boudicca's forces in and then just take them down. Okay. But, mm-hmm. okay, they also had the fighting strategies, mm-hmm. one of which called for Roman troops to align themselves in a dense arrow shape, like a, a zigzag, um, that never stopped moving. This is actually, um, it, it's ultimately, she underestimated this tactic's devastating effectiveness. It's so mm-hmm. devastatingly effective that it was used in rugby for some time. <laughs> but now it's illegal because too many people were getting injured, right? So, um, Okay. <laughs> So her army was quickly trampled, literally trampled, you know, mm-hmm. uh, by this Roman strategy. Okay, basically the Roman forces, you just stick, they would just stick really close together in this arrow mm-hmm. shape with their shields, and they would just stab from behind their shields. Mm-hmm. And, you know, Roman discipline was amazing, and so they would not break this form. And so fallen people were simply trampled under the Roman soldiers' feet as the Roman soldiers would continue marching and stabbing from behind their shields. And remember... Boudicca's forces were mainly naked. They had zero um, armor to protect them from these stabbings. Um, They had a hodgepodge of weapons, but really nothing compared to this one simple, undevastating strategy. Mm -hmm. So they pushed Boudicca's forces right up into the surrounding forest and right up into the wagons. And Mm -hmm. here's the other thing. Boudicca's forces and the Iceni people and the Triowantes and the all of the um, tribes were so confident that they were going to kick Rome out and win this battle that they had invited all of their families. And the families sat waiting up on what? higher on the hill. Family outings were a lot different back then. <laughs> <laughs> yes. So they were waiting in their wagons with all their children to view the victory. Like, you know, the sources say events. they brought picnics? <laughs> <laughs> Guaranteed they did. And so... They were pushed back into these wagons, and their families were slaughtered oh. along with them. Um, and Great. Lovely. Yeah. Um, they found themselves right in the midst of the battle, and um, oh. most were, were slaughtered by the Roman troops. And, mm-hmm. and by, you know, obviously you can imagine by this time, the Roman troops had broken formation and arrow configuration and were full force running after and just cutting down Britons who were fleeing for their lives. Mm-hmm. 
So, with this final battle, the Romans squashed Boudicca's and the Native Britons' rebellion continued occupying Britain. Mm-hmm. And nobody knows for sure what fate Boudicca herself finally met. Some say she poisoned herself that very day, and some say she didn't. So, I don't know. Probably something we'll never know. But what we do know is that Boudicca's rebellion in 60-61 AD was among the most unexpected and successful in history, bar none. Mm-hmm. Um, and impressive, I'd say. I mean, these were a whole bunch of naked, ragtag people <laughs> who managed to squash three Roman cities. And this was at the height of the Roman Empire. Well, the beginning of the end, I guess you could say. You know <laughs> but still, extremely awesome. impressive. And probably a best example of Roman hubris. And then just a whole lesson on hubris. And then when you start <laughs> kicking the, the big the big guys' ass, please don't make the same mistake with being overly confident. <laughs> And invite your whole family to watch. Check. <laughs> Don't let history yeah. repeat itself. The next time you have to overthrow some Romans, make sure you pick the <laughs> battlefield. <laughs> yeah. So that's the story of Boudicca. Um, there's a really great statue that you can see of her that's still in London of her on her chariot with her arms outstretched. And I think we'll put it up on the website. But Cool. Uh, uh, really good book um, that you, if you do want to get like a better idea of like all the different ways that her story has been told throughout Britain, British history, it's called Boudicca, Iron Age Warrior Queen, and it's by Richard Hingley and Christina Unwin. Um, so that's a pretty good read, and it's pretty detailed. Sweet. Okay, um, let's talk about fucking Catherine the Great. still drinking my vodka spiked hot chocolate to Catherine the Great. And she's just kind of very interesting in that her story started out the same as a lot of European princesses who married uh, an heir to the throne. And then she took over and basically pushed pushed the country that she kind of adopted as her own into a completely new era. So basically, from what you've been told from fairy tales, princesses, did not have that glamorous of a life. <laughs> sure, they had all the money, but basically they were just there to be married off to someone that it would benefit their parents and then have as many children as quickly as possible. In 1729, a German princess named Sophia was born. Her father was a dull but kind soldier. Her mother was an ambitious woman who spent a fair amount of her adult life scheming and bitching that she'd married beneath herself. Uh, when Sophia was about 10, she met an 11-year-old boy named Carl Peter Ulrich. The boy was sickly, and in one account I read, had already gone to drink. Uh, <laughs> he was an orphan who had entered into the care of Sophia's mother's brother. His mother, Anna, had died when he was a few weeks old. Though feeling weakened after childbirth, she laughed when her ladies-in-waiting urged her away from the open window where she sat to watch the fireworks, heralding her son's birth. Because it was February, and they thought she might catch colds. And she laughed and said, you call this colds? I am Russian. Ha! Huh this cult <laughs> and uh so at the moment she was the wife of this german duke but she came into the world as the daughter of peter the great of russia but mm-hmm. apparently she must underestimate a german cold because she got pneumonia and died um and then the boy's father died when he was about 10 after instilling in him an obsession with the prussian military which wouldn't exactly go to serve him all that well later in life <laughs> so when Sophia met little Carl, she was 10 and he was 11. He was a possible heir to both the Swedish and Russian throne. And so when they at least managed to exchange a few words at this, you know, kind of rich people aristocratic gathering, everyone started whispering like, oh, wouldn't it be great if they got married someday? Not because of any romantic illusions, mm-hmm. but the words future king kind of uh, rang sweetly in the ears of Sophia and her mother, even though she was only 10 at this time. As Sophia got older in Russia, Peter the Great's daughter, Elizabeth, gained the throne. I feel like it wouldn't be too uncharitable to classify the rule of Russia between Peter and Elizabeth as a bunch of also-rans. First, Peter's wife, Catherine, took over. And then his grandson, who died, you know, when he was like 15 after ruling for like, ruling, you know what I mean, for like four years. And then just when Elizabeth Mm -hmm. was about ready to take over the throne. Peter's half-brother's daughter, Anna, rode back in from Germany and took charge. 
she in Ivanovna is just unbelievably freaking peculiar. But uh, I'll tell you more about her in the inebriational travelogue that we're going to record later. So when Anna was dying, she named her successor to be her infant grandnephew with uh, his mother serving as regent. And rather than be passed over again and possibly forced into a convent and or murdered, Elizabeth seized the throne in a coup, threw the infant emperor, Ivan VI, and his mother, who was regent, in jail, and took over. The palace guards and the army were fond of her because of who her father was, and the poor baby was thrown into jail until his death some 20-some years later. So Elizabeth was on the throne, but she didn't have an heir, which was pretty worrisome for her if people at some point remembered that there was briefly this golden boy child king who was rotting away in some fortress basement. So she scuttles over her sister's boy, Carl Peter Ulrich, who was, after all, a grandson of Peter the Great, but it became clear upon meeting him that he wasn't the most reassuring of future monarchs, even <laughs> as a, um, even as, like, I guess he would have been 14 at the time that she met him. And so she kind of thought that it would probably be a good thing if he got married off and got another heir should people start feeling the need to be choosy. She'd never married, and despite she'd spent a lot of her teen years sowing plenty of wild oats, she didn't have any heirs, which kind of led her to believe that even if she did decide to get married, that she probably wouldn't be able to produce a child because she was like in her 30s at this point. So mm. before settling on her court favorite, who was this <laughs> Ukrainian named Razumovsky, who she picked for singing really pretty in the choir, <laughs> she had had one man that she had loved, who was a fiancé who had died of smallpox shortly before the wedding. And this man was an older brother of Sophia's mother, Johanna. Ooh. Johanna was, of course, very aware of this connection she had with the now Empress of Russia. So she, you know, keeps writing her letters, congratulating her, asking her how she's doing, you know, things like that. Even names her next daughter, Elizabeth. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So at first she gets rewarded with a portrait of the Empress set in jewels. And then, also in part through some persuasion by Frederick the Great, the Empress sends Johanna an invite, asking her to come to Russia secretly and bring little Sophia. Her and Mummy Dearest make the journey to Russia, stopping first in Berlin to get advice from Frederick, who was very impressed with young Sophia's wit and intelligence. Uh, she was precocious even at that age, and even as early as 10, a visiting Swedish diplomat had told her mother to encourage bright Sophia. When she encountered him later as the Grand Duchess, he scolded her for not keeping up her skills, and I totally love this. She then writes him an essay, Portrait of a 15-Year-Old Philosopher, to try to prove him that she still has the goods. Which I think is so cute. While Sophie is making an impression on Frederick, Mum is making contacts with the Prussian court and starts in on this idea of espionage or, you know, just corresponding with the Prussian court. That's going to get her in over her head. The two arrive in Russia. Sophia begins the process of becoming a suitable fiancé for Peter, which involved learning Russian, even though Peter barely spoke Russian, even at the time of his death. And she also starts the process of converting to the Russian Orthodox Church, which her father, though he was left behind in Germany, wasn't very happy with because, you know, he was a very pious Lutheran. And you can kind of see the evidence of who she would become later in here, because she was very pragmatic and explained to her father by a letter that really Lutheranism and Orthodoxy weren't all that different, and it was just a matter of ritual, and there weren't any key theological mm -hmm. differences. And she was, in her own way, she seemed well, like kind of secular, like, and she used religion kind of as a tool more than she was a devout believer. Vladimir, like the, the first Russian king, um, apparently he only chose Orthodoxy because it had nice rituals and bright colors and because you were allowed to drink he rejected <laughs> he rejected islam because he's like well that won't work for russians you can't drink yeah yeah i've heard that story too <laughs> but yeah so catherine was so dedicated to learning russian that she would pace around late at night for weeks learning russian vocabulary and her memoirs she credits that sleeplessness and the fact that she was doing this bare feet to her coming down ill but she had the political acumen to while she was ill, asking for Father Semyon, the priest who'd been converting her to Russian Orthodoxy. And the Empress was very impressed with that, <laughs> that she asked for mm. him instead of like a Lutheran priest. So she'd met Peter and they at least 
even even immediately, Peter was just like, well, you know, sure, I'll marry you because that's what my aunt wants. But, you know, I really have my eye on this person and that person and whoever it was just kept on changing. And so before they were about to marry, there was about a period of a year and a half that she was betrothed and just at court because doctors didn't think that Peter was yet healthy and mature enough to be married off. And that was almost proven very right when he was stricken with smallpox before they were married. Um, and he survived, though scarred, to be married to Catherine in August of 1745 when she was 16 and he was 17. There were balls and fireworks, but the Empress ordered the young couple to their quarters to, you know, begin begatten quite early. But that isn't what happens. Poor Catherine was left all alone in her big marriage bed where, well, Peter kept on partying. And she's just like, I didn't know what to do. I kind of just sat there. And eventually he came in past midnight, totally plastered and giggling and said, wouldn't my servants laugh to see us in bed together? Then he turned <laughs> over and passed out. <laughs> oh, God. Lovely wedding night. And he didn't lay a finger on her in bed for the next nine years. Her mother was sent away soon after that, having foolishly engaged in gossip and borderline espionage with Prussia throughout Sophia's engagement, with the full knowledge of one of Elizabeth's advisors, who eventually exposed her, because he'd been copying down all her correspondence where she would make pithy remarks about the Queen and with the French ambassador, and then he would just... Copy it down and then send the letter on and they had no idea. And then eventually he just showed them to Elizabeth, who was pissed. Thanks. And yeah, so thus begins the loneliest chapter of Catherine's life. Um, for years, Catherine's life was this. She had servants intriguing with the Empress to get her and Peter to breed. Peter had no interest in doing anything but making it clear how unimpressive and doltish she was and telling Catherine about all the other women he was interested in. Not screwing, mind you, because he still wasn't really going to do that but um just you know oh have you noticed that so-and-so is so much more beautiful than you and things like that they would be locked in a room in bed together by this one servant madame choglakova who was totally with the empress and then this other servant that was a friend of theirs would sneak in and bring peter his puppets to play with and then as like a 19 year old peter would make catherine the service play puppets with him She came in one day to find him torturing this rat, and he told her that it had been convicted of damaging one of his wooden soldiers, so he put it on trial and convicted it, in which she might terribly standing guard outside the door with the rifle so the sentence could be carried out. (laughs) So the Empress was, like, alternately generous and lovely to Catherine, and then furious and arbitrary with her, when for whatever reason it was particularly infuriating to her that day that there was no heir. And, I mean, unless there was immaculate conception, there wasn't going to be during this time. Mm -hmm. But I'm just going to mention in here, uh, one of the more peculiarly awesome ways of getting on the Empress's good side was to tell her how good she looked in drag. See, Elizabeth was a heifer, but she had ace pins. And so inordinately huge ball gowns were not the best way to show off one's legs. So she threw cord balls where everyone had to dress in drag. And so basically everyone looked like a total mm-hmm. schmuck, except for Elizabeth and her nice gowns. So Catherine would come to her and be like, oh, it's a pity I am. <laughs> it's a pity you are not really a man. Otherwise, you know, you should look out and <laughs> things like that. <laughs> Basically, for chunks of time, they would be like, no, you just have to hang out with Peter because you guys need to do something. And at this point, she was still like, like what? His idea of a vacation, (laughs) like there was this particular summer where his hobbies were learning violin and training hunting dogs. I get a headache (laughs) just thinking about it. (laughs) The kennel, I mean, obviously the only place for it was at the foot of their bed. And Peter, having had a poor childhood, rather enjoyed the negative reinforcement aspects of training, so there was a lot of yowling going on. And Catherine's comment on this time was, after the dogs, I was the most miserable creature in the world. But what did she do with this time of misery? She read voraciously. History, literature, and philosophy, particularly French, and particularly her future pen pal, Voltaire. She was also a huge fan of Montesquieu, and I'm sure she was taking notes for what his early enlightenment era work said about the enlightenment in the enlightened despot for the ruler that she hoped to be after all she didn't marry peter for his wit she was very much aware that the end goal was someday he would be on the throne and hopefully he would you know take her advice eventually though to get that air made first the empress persuaded a young widow to um shall we say uh lift peter's inhibitions <laughs> 
Mm-hmm. And one of her agents also rather encouraged Catherine to have an affair with a young man at court who turned out to be a real loveman leave him hound called Sergei, Sergei Saltikov, to both, you know, lower her ambitions and initiate her into the idea of having sex. And, you know, with the idea that at least if there was a kid, then people wouldn't exactly look too closely as to whether he looked enough like Peter. If Peter and Catherine ever actually got it on, this is around when. Anyway, so after uh, starting a physical relationship with Peter and Sergei Saltikov, Catherine had a few miscarriages, and then a child, Paul. Uh, Elizabeth immediately took him away and started raising him. Catherine was pretty sad and had some postpartum depression, and bookworm that she was, she read her way out of it. On Paul's parentage, uh, most do say he looks a lot like Peter. Uh, Virginia Rounding's book on it put it like, well, people said that Sergei Saltikov was handsome, so that's a big mark for him not being Paul's father. (laughs) But Paul had many of Peter's characteristics, and so did several of his children, so whether this was a young boy trying to emulate the father he barely got to know, or genetics. I mean, who knows? Mm-hmm. Well, we saw that painting of him. I think, well, he did look a lot like his the Peter. Right. But, I mean, that that's painted. You know what I mean? Like, they, whoever the painter was probably had more of a reason to emphasize the features yeah. of his that looked like Peter than the features of his that looked like some random guy that yeah. was at court for a couple of years. <laughs> Yeah, are those the only paintings we have of him? Yeah, I mean, I, I, Paul does look like Peter in most of the paintings. I, I mean, mm-hmm. like, basically the only way to ever know for certain would be to do DNA testing, but no one's done that. Yeah. So. But yeah, Salty Cobb was kind of an asshole, so once he'd conquered Catherine, he got bored and moved on. And eventually she took up a new lover, uh, Stanislaw Poniatowski who was a nice Polish boy, who she'd later make king of Poland against his wishes after she got the throne. Peter even finds this out, instead of getting mad, was like, oh, seriously? You're having an affair? Me too! Let's all hang out and drink and play with puppets! So yeah. <laughs> Catherine Poniatowski, Peter, and Peter's mistress, uh, Elizabeth Vonsova, who was not described very well in most sources as just this, like, homely, coarse, hunchback noble that Peter was doing. So they'd just, like, hang out. And Peter found, like, nothing awkward about that at all. But it didn't look well for the Grand Duchess to be openly carrying on like that. And Stanislaw mm-hmm. got sent back to Poland. Uh, she had his child, this young girl, Anna, who died as a young toddler. And Catherine didn't speak much of her in, like, her memoirs or anything. After Poniatowski was sent away, and as Elizabeth's health was worsening, Catherine started carrying on secretly with Grigory Orloff, who was this well-connected soldier from a family of, big family of soldiers who would prove to be a wise choice. So um, Peter beat the speculation that his son would be named the new Tsar, and when Elizabeth died in December of 1761, she didn't amend her succession, and Peter got the throne. Catherine was the very picture of the dutiful mourner at Elizabeth's bedside in her funeral train. (laughs) At least maybe in part to do with her mourning dress. It was rather ample and not too form-fitting and could cover up the fact that she was knocked up. And it was totally not Peter's. (laughs) (laughs) Things were not going well enough with them that, uh... They were still doing it. But Peter, on the other hand, and bear in mind, this isn't some boy emperor. This is a grown-ass 32-year-old man, decides Mm -hmm. to play a little game while walking in the funeral train. See, so court etiquette demanded that I have this little old courtier walking behind him carrying his mourning cloak that was, like, draped across Peter's soldiers. So Peter Mm -hmm. would slow down, let the hearse get way ahead of him and then take off running to catch up at a speed that the old courtier couldn't keep up with him, so the cape would come loose and flap in the wind. (laughs) A bunch of times. (laughs) At her funeral, for the recently deceased ruler of the country that he was now the ruler of. Wow. A country that he had always made no bones about the fact that he had no interest in ruling. He was just like, oh, I like Prussia so much more. So, yeah, the first thing he did was withdraw from the war with Prussia, which, though Russia was winning, Peter conceded (laughs) all the territorial gains that they'd made. Then he took over the church lands from the state. Then he freed nobles from the compulsory service to the state, which, on the one hand, was sort of welcome to them, but also sort of alarming to them because they wondered if this meant that they would lose their place in society. We should have a a battle between Caligula and Peter (laughs) III. Oh, <laughs> Kilike would totally murder the shit out of Peter. Are you kidding me? It's true, it's true, but let's say <laughs> they were in trouble and they couldn't touch each other and they were just about allowed to like go about their business in the same castle. Yeah, that would be kind of fun. <laughs> <laughs> 
I think they'd get along until Caligula decided to murder him and Peter wouldn't be able to do a fucking thing about it because he was a dunce. (laughs) So for instance, a lot of what we know about Peter comes from Catherine's memoirs and then comes from people reflecting on his reign after Catherine took over and did a very, very good job. And there are Peter Mm. apologists out there that are like, he wasn't so bad, but come on. Mm, I don't know. The funeral story kind of clinches it. So he was already at this point making idle talk of divorcing Catherine and disinheriting his son and marrying his mistress, which for there were already some people at court that already felt that Catherine would be a better face on the throne than Peter. And so that worried them. And then he started uh, revving up a campaign against Denmark, of all places, not in the interest of Russia, but in the interest of Holstein, which was the German province he was from. They'd taken it, and he wanted it back. Mm. And he even dressed up the Russian Imperial Guard at the palace in the uniforms of Prussia, the army they'd just been fighting and had to surrender to in a rather (laughs) undignified manner. (laughs) He even, like, called the ruler, uh, he even called Frederick the Great, like, his king in several toasts. This was all going over very well, as you might imagine. Oh, and he never even got around to having a coronation ceremony back in Moscow. Too busy. Too busy. And so Catherine still had to bide her time, though, because she was knocked up, and that wouldn't look very good. And eventually it came time for her birth, and I really love this. As a diversion, when she was giving birth, one of her loyal valets set fire to his own house to distract Peter. I just, this is amazing. Can you just imagine this exchange? You know how the emperor likes watching burning things? (laughs) How about when you go into labor, I'll set my house on fire. Let's create a diversion. Brilliant. And it works. She had the kid, sent him away, and was able to begin plotting in earnest with no shortage of people who would rather have her on the throne than Peter. So she had Orloff his connections to all the soldiers. And so they started bribing them and kind of talking them into it. And Nikolai Panin, who was Paul's tutor and would be one of her advisors, you know, talked, talked it up amongst the nobles. She got herself a tidy amount of support. News of this did in fact reach Peter, but he ignored it completely. The two of them in the court were away at Peterhof when news got to Catherine that one of her supporters had been arrested, which almost certainly meant the plan would be spilled when he was tortured. So she fled into the night with Grigory's brother Alexis Orloff and headed to St. Petersburg. They meant to accomplish the coup now instead of when they had planned, just because soon the beans were going to be spilled. So they met up with Grigory and her French hairdresser in another carriage en route, and Catherine got her hair done and changed into a regimental uniform in a carriage on her way to the coup. She gets to St. Petersburg, and all along the way, regiment after regiment is swearing allegiance to her. And she took the oath of sovereignty while anointed by a priest at the very church where she had married Peter. They even mm-hmm. smuggled her son Paul out to join her on the balcony of the Winter Palace during the celebration. And as she's completing her uniform, she finds that she's missing her sword knot. A 22-year-old guardsman rides over and give her his. She asks him his name, and he is Gregory Pachomkin, and he would later be very important to her and to Russia. So someone tells Peter that his wife has just seized the throne. And that's his dumbest heart. He doesn't believe it for a second. <laughs> Even starts searching around her rooms trying to find her. So he gathers his uh, regiment of Holstein soldiers, because, yes, he imported some soldiers from Germany to hang out with him. And these they were even there when Elizabeth was still around, so we'd have to hide them from her. You would have to just hide a whole regiment when Elizabeth's friends came around. Um, <laughs> but despite all these years of playing with soldiers, he finds he has a blessed clue how to plan an actual battle strategy. Um, <laughs> first, he tries a couple of different fortresses, realizes that they've all been... He's like, this is your emperor. And they're like, nope, we just got an empress, buddy. Sorry. <laughs> and so he rides back to Iranian bomb, sends everyone away. When he hears Catherine and her forces are marching to them. And first he writes Catherine this tearful letter being like, I'm sorry, I'll be good. And if you want, you can share the throne with me. <laughs> <laughs> she, of course, doesn't reply, realizing, well, I already have the whole thing. <laughs> so mm. he also realizes this and writes her the second letter offering to abdicate if he can go with his mistress back to Holstein. She wants it in writing, and he flat-out abdicates. Probably the first wise thing he did. Yeah. As Frederick the Great later put it, he allowed himself to be dethroned like a child being sent to bed. (laughs) (laughs) 
So she tosses him in the shit house. He writes her asking for his mistress, or uh, failing that, at least his dog. Just <laughs> these abjectly miserable letters. But perhaps, unfortunately, for Catherine's appearances in Europe, he didn't remain her prisoner for very long. Just over a week into his captivity, she gets this frantic letter from Alexis Orlov, who was one of his jailers, and it's just begging for her mercy and forgiveness. But somehow... Peter's gotten killed accidentally. Mm -hmm. Um, They'd been eating. There was a quarrel. And when Peter and the certain prince were separated, Peter was dead. The letter, Mm -hmm. its tone in the view of most, including your son, Paul, who found it after her death, exonerate Catherine from having a hand in Peter's murder. Of course, she kind of had to have known on some level that if he stayed alive, he would always be a danger to her. And I'm sure the Orlovs knew that. So on their part, I wonder how accidental it was. She locked up the the letter in a drawer where it stayed for the next 30 years, and the official story at the time was that Peter had taken ill and died. Mm -hmm. This didn't look good for her with the rest of Europe, and it followed a few years later with another bloody death of a possible competitor. There was uh, this ambitious young soldier, Lieutenant Vasily Mirovich, who discovered the location of Ivan VI. Remember him? The poor little infant who got thrown in jail for his whole life? Uh-huh, uh-huh. Yeah, for basically just for the crime of once being named emperor. For his entire life, he'd only seen his jailers um, who weren't allowed to speak to him. And reports vary as to his sanity. Like some people just think, say that he was a complete idiot in the mm-hmm. conventional sense of the term. And some people say that he still wanted to be referred to as sovereign and knew the deal. Hmm. Mirovich wasn't doing well for himself, so he tried to free Ivan and place him at the head of the coup. He didn't know that the order had first been laid down by Elizabeth, despite the fact that she'd otherwise forbidden executions during her reign, that if any attempt was made to free Ivan, that he should be killed in his cell rather than there being even a possibility of it succeeding. Mm -hmm. Catherine kept this order in the books, so when Vasily's small force made it to Ivan's cell, they found him bayoneted by his guards and dead. Mm. Mirovich was later put on trial and executed. Uh, He wasn't tortured at any point, as Catherine didn't believe in torture, thinking it both barbaric and ineffective, and making the point of it was punishment for someone before they'd been convicted of a crime. Wow. This made people think that she was in coups with him, so lovely time to be alive, I'm sure. She didn't torture him, therefore she must have paid him off. Um, So despite these taints on how she maintained her throne in the early years, there were still many enlightened figures who cautiously began to write her when they saw how truly bright and charming and earnest this new empress was. Um, She'd asked for essays with advice on how to run her country, and many philosophers, mostly the French, saw this as an opportunity and Russia as a blank slate to try their ideas out on. They wanted to mold this new enlightened monarch. Some of her correspondence, I'm just going to talk about a couple of them. She corresponded with Voltaire very, very much. He called her the Semiramis of the North and wrote to her, like, my dear St. Catherine. Woo! Uh, yeah, cute. She bought his library after his death and placed it in the Hermitage. I don't know if it's still there. I didn't see it when I was there, but, I mean, it probably would have had a label in Russian, so I wouldn't have known. She also... <laughs> corresponded with and met Diderot, uh, the guy who wrote the encyclopedia. And she even bought his library when he was penniless and selling it, and then said it would be cruel to take a scholar from his books and paid him to be a huge stipend to be the curator of it while he was still alive back in Paris. And so he came to visit her right around the time that Paul was getting married off. He wanted to advise her on every little thing about how to run the country. So she listened patiently, and they had many good conversations, but she knew that most of what he was telling her was impossible, so finally she told him, In your plans for reform, you're forgetting the difference between our two positions. You work only on paper, which accepts anything, is smooth and flexible, and offers not obstacles either to your imagination or your pen, while I, poor Empress, work on human skin, which is far more sensitive and touchy. Um, Another very Enlightenment-era culture thing that she did was she had this art stealer that she employed in Paris named Grimm, who collected an impressively huge amount of art for her that got placed in the Hermitage, which is just pretty much the biggest art museum in the world. And it started basically because Catherine just absolutely ravenously bought any painting that she could. So a full list of Catherine's modifications and improvements to Russia would take ages, so I'm just going to have to give the gist. Um, One of the first big ones was she attempted to codify together a new established framework of law. The last time this had been attempted was in 1649, and there hadn't even been such a thing as a law school in Russia until 1755. Wow. She participated at first by writing out her nakaz, or instructions, for the group that she gathered. This work was heavily influenced by French Enlightenment philosophers like Diderot and Montesquieu. In fact, a lot of it is basically a copy-paste from Montesquieu's The Spirit of Law. These philosophers also had a hand um, 
were also very inspiring to the founding fathers who of this country. Her advisors got her to cut out the more radical bits like criticisms of serfdom. Her published statements in there on serfs is that she wanted to make it possible for them to buy their freedom and that servitude would be limited to six years and that they could never be serfed again once free. Serfs wouldn't actually be freed until 1861 by her uh, great-grandson, Alexander II, but... Um, so, wait, to buy their freedom? Yeah. But they'd, how, do, how, do, how would they make money if they're well, serfs? <laughs> No, but they they could still um even at the time I think serfs could still like work auxiliarily. You know what I mean? Like like a tinker or something. Instituting capitalism. She wanted mm-hmm. to do something like that, but you know, I mean it didn't happen. The nobles yeah. talked her out of it. Apparently her reign, um, and this time was the first time that, that the moral right to have serfs started to be questioned. Mm-hmm. Yeah, people would talk about it on practical levels and, like, worry about revolt, but this was kind of... People would walk around, like, surf, like, villages that were really impoverished and be like, oh, God, how can they live in such disgusting conditions? And she's like, they don't even own their own souls. How can you expect them to care if they're clean? While this law was attempted to be... um, These legal codes were attempted to be drawn up. She gathered representatives from classes of nobles, merchants, and town peoples from all different areas of Russia to come to St. Petersburg and try to work something out. No serfs, true, but it was the first attempt to have a gathering like that to petition the monarch. It wasn't like they could tell her what to do, or it was actually some kind of constituent assembly, but it was like the first time that anything even that close had happened in Russia. Also, it basically served as an introduction to the ideals of the French Enlightenment for a lot of these people who hadn't seen it before, and it even got read aloud to those of them who were illiterate, which, I mean, even a bunch of nobles in Russia at this time were illiterate. And this is the time that she got her sobriquet of the great. Although she refused it at the time um, and didn't allow it used in her lifetime, it couldn't have hurt her feelings that Peter I hadn't gotten the great tacked on to his name until decades into his reign. And she got it attached in about four years. Mm. And it really shored up her position against those who assumed or advocated the idea that she was merely acting as Paul's regent. Uh, apologies in advance. I won't be mentioning him much. They weren't exactly close. <laughs> um, mm. She has fought, She has saw his father in them, uh, whichever one that may be. <laughs> and uh, yeah, he spent a lot of his young life assuming that any year now when he reached majority, he would be crowned as at least cold ruler, if not sole emperor. And then his majority came and went. And she never showed the slightest intention of this, even possibly considering at the end of her life, throwing Paul out of the succession to name his son Alexander, the next Tsar. But the legal code wasn't done uh, when the war when war broke up with Turkey in 1768 and it never got finished. So a lot of the next decades of her reign were devoted to foreign policy concerns. But just the, the short story on that was that she took a chunk of land out of Turkey and put her former man Stanislaw Poniatowski on the throne of Poland, despite his wishes. And over the whole time, between her and Prussia and Austria, they kind of just wiped Poland off the map. <laughs> yeah, I feel really bad for Poniatowski. When he hears his former woman is now head of Russia, he thinks he's going to come back. He yeah. hasn't really heard that she's sacking up with Orlov. And if he has, he thinks that this uncouth soldier is just, you know, a passing thing or something she did to get her coup. So he writes all these pathetic letters begging her not to make him a king. He'd rather just be an ambassador, an advisor of court than to be a king in a foreign land um and she wanted him there so he got put there so he gets this really articulate breakup letter somewhere on the lines of goodbye life is full of strange circumstances and she makes him a king <laughs> uh, the very last partition was after the french revolution when catherine had gotten a little bit more reactionary i mean they were beheading rulers so yeah. you know you can imagine she was a bit concerned um, and she was worried about there being Polish Jacobins. Um, the words of one of her biographers, uh, Isabel de Madriaga, seems indeed as though Poland and the Poles brought out the worst in the Russians, rather as the Irish do with the English. <laughs> <laughs> the first war with Turkey finished up at a very op- opportune time because there was a whole new set of problems within her own country. So remember how in the first drafts of her legal code, she was trying to get a lot of reforms for serfs and the nobles wouldn't let her. At one point she said about referring to the state not doing enough to punish cruel masters, if we do not agree to reduce this cruelty and moderate a situation intolerable for human beings, then sooner or later they will do it themselves. And that got pretty well proven to her. Emilian Pugachev, who is a Cossack deserter posing as Peter III, led a revolt on many southern cities. And just it was just this orgy of murder and rape and destruction, just massacring nobles and all their families and their homes. Like, And he would raise like an army of serfs and poor people wherever he went. 
and they sacked a bunch of cities that had in their own way been left defenseless um, while Russia was at war with Turkey. As soon as the truce had been drawn up with Turkey and the troops were returning, he was finished and he knew it. After his last held town was routed, he fled, but then his own lieutenants turned him in. After the questioning Catherine had ordered for him, it turned out that he didn't have any foreign powers backing him, so she just had him executed, not drawn and quartered like the judge had ordered, so the executioner made a mistake and just beheaded him first thing. Mm. Uh, war with Turkey also brought with it disease from the soldiers who were coming back, and Moscow was consumed by plague. And estimates of deaths in the tens of thousands, mass unrest. Oh, smallpox, sorry, not plague. She sent Orlov to put it down and then did this really remarkable thing. Inoculation was at that point not fully accepted by the general population, but she read up on it, found it plausible, and got her and her son inoculated. Mm -hmm. um, this was a time when bleeding people and talking about humors was still plausible medicine for most people. How did she inoculate herself? Um, so the, the method that they had at the time is they would find someone who had a mild case of smallpox and inject you with a pus. <laughs> no, but who, who was the random sundom she took? This little yes. syrup boy that they found, and then she ennobled him afterwards. I'm just going to borrow your ill son that might die in my care. Swoop. <laughs> yep, basically. I wonder, I, mean, I think they over-dramatized it for that documentary. <laughs> but maybe not. But yeah, I just love the idea that at some point in Russia, someone was like, wow, how'd your family become nobles? Well, <laughs> yeah. my great-great-grandfather gave the empress some pus. But yeah, she got many people to follow her lead after she and her son, you know, didn't die and didn't get smallpox. And it probably saved hundreds and then eventually hundreds of thousands of lives. Uh, she also had the beginnings of a hospital system set up during her reign, making sure that every province, and I can't really go in depth to this, but it was also her idea. And people aren't sure exactly how effectively this would run because there isn't a lot of research on the subject. But it was her idea to divide Russia into a bunch of provinces and make sure that there was local government at all these places, which at the time, didn't exist. And she made sure that all of these provinces had themselves a hospital. Um, but even after Orlov had, you know, kind of just calmed all the unrest in Moscow, he'd had one too many infidelities and bitch fest about how she wouldn't marry him. And he found himself thrown over. But, I mean, he got a palace and a boatload of titles, so whatever. She started up an affair with this real boar named Vasilchikov. He might as well have had rebound tattooed on his forehead. Um, towards the end of that relationship, she started corresponding with a charming and brilliant and funny young man who'd caught her eyes years before by giving her a sword knot um, during the coup. And later, when on request, he did a hilarious and spot-on impression of her to her face. She found she began thinking about him a lot. I've heard it pronounced Potemkin, Potomkin, Pachomkin. I kind of like Pachomkin because it's fun to say. So I'm just going to call him Grigory Pachomkin. He was off fighting in the Turkish war, and she wrote him this really sweet letter to not put himself in harm's way because Russia needed men like him. So he rides right back, and he finds her still with Vasilchikov. So he was always quite the drama queen. He goes to this monastery and starts acting like he's going to take vows. <laughs> <laughs> But she coaches him, coaxes him back to the Winter Palace, and they start this, like, passionate, really long-lasting, even though it wasn't always a romantic relationship, that was very good for both parties politically, and he was a tremendously good advisor. Like, she chose well with him. And I'm not saying that I think the Clintons are close to this awesome, but I feel like there's some commonality there in that they were all about just that we get in really long political discussions and collaborate and just bounce ideas off of each other. They may have even gotten married in a morganatic marriage, meaning that there, he would have no claim to any kind of Russian, um, you know, throne mm. and any children that they had wouldn't have had that. Um, there isn't any concrete proof, but at some point in their relationship, excuse me, she starts referring to him in correspondence as husband, which she didn't do for any lovers before him or any after him hmm. as like a physical relationship after only about two years. It was just too intense. They fought a lot. He was often jealous. She would get peeved and miserable when they thought fought. And, you know, at this point she was also trying to run a country. So yeah. it is like, you know what I mean? She really had all the time for all his drama. So as a couple, they called it quits, but he remained on as a friend, general advisor, you name it, and she took up with a new string of young lovers. He'd even kind of suggest and or approve them, and if he didn't like them, out the door they went. Mm -hmm. um, and I don't know. I mean, there were there's some gaps in between her favorites. I wouldn't be surprised if still once in a while they were getting it on. I mean, they were very, very attached to each other. 
But let's just say towards the end of her reign, I just think of Matthew McConaughey and Dazed and Confused. You know what I mean? Like 20 something pretty boys. I get older. They stay the same age. (laughs) You know, they were often around their 20s or like early 30s, which at first when she started this sort of thing, she was like 40. So that wasn't that weird. But there was a really sad one in the middle there. Alexander Lanskoy, who at the time that they started um, relationship, he was 22 and she was 50. And she really loved him. She thought she was going to grow old with him. And he sounded like a real doll. It, it almost seems, and I'll say kind of sickly, like maternal. She would like get him these little rock polishing kits and apothecary kits. They were together about four years. Mm-hmm. And then he took ill with a fever. Um, probably it sounds like it would be diphtheria. And it sounds like this might be one of the catalysts for that horse story that doesn't bear mentioning and needless to say isn't the least bit true. But in the depths of his delirium, he started yelling at everyone to bring the horses in. Why haven't you brought the horses in? We need the horses. And then he didn't make it. <laughs> And she was pretty inconsolable for a while. So people interpreted him yelling that as, oh, they must use horses in the sack? What? Um, And (laughs) the way that it often is, I'm not saying that she was completely above reproach in terms of, you know what I mean? Her, It is kind of sad to be dating 20-year-olds when you're 50. Well, not if you have the companionship of someone else. I don't know. Is it beyond reproach? You just get laid. Nothing wrong with that. But yeah, people often like to tag powerful women with, like, being sexual deviants, you know. Yeah. It's it's just a thing. A couple of more favorites, and then lastly, at the end of her life, there was kind of this unfortunate prick named Platon Zuboff, who no one knew why he liked him so much. At this point, Pachomkin was dead, and he was this ambitiously transparent twerp, and yeah, he was with her at the time that she died. <laughs> Less said about him, the better. But so in seventeen eighty seven she took she took a tour down the territory in Turkey that she'd conquered with French ambassadors and this Austrian monarch, kind of this glory lap for her, and also probably showing off to these countries like, hey, uh, how about you not fuck with us? Mm-hmm. And that amount of travel was kind of unprecedented for a monarch of her time. So she tried to take her two grandsons with her, but they got measles, so she had to leave them behind. Alexander was the older grandson, and she was quite fond of him. She took a big hand in his education Um, ran about the same time that she was trying to institute standardized secular public education all across the country. And this is, again, one of those things that on the one hand, some historians usually of the Soviet era, like, take her to task for and be like, oh, but it wasn't completely fully public education. Like, not everyone was educated. Like, this, but it's just like, well, yes, not all serf children could afford to be out of the home and not helping out and attending the school. But the point is, is they could have. You know what I mean? Like, there wasn't a discrimination. So on this tour, there was a a phrase that turned up called Pachomkin Villages, where people claimed they would take the same peasants around and they would be singing and dancing at the next town down the way. But that's kind of horseshit. That was only spread by your enemies. In, like, under 15 years, Pachomkin was kind of the default viceroy of this area. The population of the Crimea and the, the parts of Turkey that Russia had taken over quadrupled. So this trip and the display of Russian naval power in the Bay of Sebastopol in full view of Turkey led to a nice little sequel war with Turkey to plague a bunch of the rest of her reign. They waited until she got back to St. Petersburg and then called for the Russian envoy, then locked him up, which I guess was their way of declaring war. <laughs> so Sweden decided to pile on and they all got defeated, but it seems like her power was waning and she was growing older. Um, she died of a stroke at the age of 67. Her son Paul succeeded her her having not yet made the decision to exclude him in favor of his teenage son, Alexander. And he promptly buried her next to his father in the Peter and Paul Cathedral and put the oh. days on stone to make it sound like they'd reigned together at this whole time. <laughs> yeah. And then the first thing he did too, was change the rules from uh, Peter had changed it to rulers could name their own successors. And Paul switched it straight back to first male child. He gets the first pick. Rulers can't pick their own successors anymore because he was really sick of his whole life just being like, am I going to reign now? Am I going to, oh my God, is she going to kick me out in favor of my kid? This is horrible. You know, and yeah, he only made it for five years before someone killed him. So whatever. <laughs> in general, Catherine's mark is definitely seen on St. Petersburg. Uh, there's the beautiful bronze statue of Peter, uh, the renown that her- the hermitage has brought the city and the huge expansion it saw from the sparse swamp town it was under Peter the first. And even under Elizabeth, like it was still a place that nobles went kind of because they had to. 
And not because they liked to. Understandable. So she carried on the process that Peter started of making Russian more European, but kind of from this more enlightened and educated angle. And she attempted and kind of set up the the framework for the systems of education, law, local governments, um, and medicine. And she was this clever, cunning, capable, resourceful power queen not to be messed with. And I feel like she deserves to be seen as an enlightenment figure as well as a monarch. Thank you for listening to Dame is a Four-Letter Word. I'm Lindsay. And I'm LP. And tune in next time for when we're going to be talking about soldiers. Oh, yeah, now you found out I would bleed, so you keep me free. You found out I would cry, so you keep me cry. One day you'll be crying too, and you can Even start searching around her rooms trying to find her. You know, I just picture him just like opening closet doors. Catherine, you hear us, yeah. Can you imagine he, they interrupted his puppet session to tell him that yeah. he's just playing puppets the whole time? Huh? <laughs> <laughs> what? Huh? But I'm drinking. Don't interrupt daddy when he's drinking. Um. <laughs>